right. Thank you for joining us with our Conversations podcast. Uh, last or two weeks ago, we were talking about the evidence for Christ's resurrection. We got about halfway through that, and we are going to start part two on that today. So again, some more evidence for the resurrection. I would strongly recommend that you go back and listen to last week's, since we'll be picking up where we left off and kind of building on some of that. So let's get to it. Okay, so uh, in case you missed last time, um, we are walking through three major categories of evidences. So we're, we're talking about biblical evidence, what does the Bible say? And we're looking at uh, circumstantial evidence, which is connected to the Bible, but it's a little different. And you'll see what we mean when we get right. there. And then we're taking a look at a couple of historical evidences. And so uh, non-believers who commented about the resurrection of Jesus uh, in the first century. So, um, so we've already given you six uh, pieces of evidence regarding the biblical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Now we're going to give you number seven. Here we go. So number seven, uh, Jesus' resurrected body was the same as his pre-resurrected body. Okay, now this is significant because his disciples recognized him as the same person who had been crucified. So while Jesus' resurrection body was the same, it was transformed. So this explains why Jesus was not always immediately recognized after his resurrection and seemed to appear and reappear mysteriously. And take in talking about this transformed body, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, by the way, 1 Corinthians, Paul, who wrote what I'm about to read, he started off as a hardcore anti-Christian, mm -hmm. persecuting the church, hating Jesus, kind of. And when he met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, it changed like that. Okay, so it's just food for thought. And we'll, we'll come back to him in a minute. So yeah, Paul says this. 1 Corinthians 15, 44, talking about our resurrected bodies. It is a, in our physical bodies versus resurrected bodies. Okay, he says, it is sown a natural body. Okay, our, our physical bodies are buried. They're sown into the ground. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Okay, so when you apply that to Jesus, Jesus' resurrection, we're seeing what the resurrected body, we're getting a glimpse of it. So, I mean, remember, okay, so last time we talked about how beat up Jesus was. And uh, matter of fact, uh, there's a prophecy in Isaiah that talks about uh, he was beaten to the point that he would be beyond human recognition. So when he was hanging on the cross, he didn't even look like Jesus. I mean, he was just bloody, swollen, beaten up, looked half dead, you know, that whole that whole thing. And so, and I think that's one of the reasons why at first some people didn't recognize him because that was their last memory of him. And so like when the women saw him, uh, like when Mary saw him, she didn't recognize him at first, but recognized the voice as, oh, wait, that's because she wasn't expecting to see him. By the way, you know, I run into, and this is a little thing that applies to this. Uh, I run into people all the time that I see at church, mm -hmm. okay? But for some reason, if I run into them at Walmart or at the school or gas station, I don't recognize them at first because 
it's I don't expect to see them. They look a little different for some reason. I mean, they're in their work clothes, and then, you know they're or they're or they're okay. Now Genesis, we don't dress up, or maybe that where they work, they dress up, and so they're dressed up, and uh, they just look different. And so I I'm if people say how can Mary not recognize Jesus, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, yeah. when somebody is dead, I mean, it it kind of puts a hindrance on recognizing him, which, like you said, I mean, does. When someone is out of their element, I guess you could say. So you're talking about recognizing people from church. Right. I mean, kids and their teachers, you know, recognizing a teacher in the store is like, wait, what? Because they're out of their element. Well, when you're dead, you're out of your element wherever you are. <laughs> uh, and I mean, really, you know, it's just, just one of those facts. But, um, and yeah, you know, recognizing people is is absolutely huge like sunday so sunday somebody walked in and um, i have never met this person and um she looks like someone that i know from tennessee well i was like what is she doing here she's all the way out here and i mean you know for the next few minutes your brain tries to convince you that is not that person there's no way they are here but you're still wanting to look and so the disciples recognizing jesus was big one of the biggest ones where they recognize Jesus, and I don't know if you're planning on talking about this, but John 21, um, you know, they, um, a couple of disciples get to the point, they're like, you know, what, we're going to go out fishing. And so they go out, and this is a very famous story. They cast their nets into the sea. They can't fit, catch anything all night. Um, so early in the morning, there's a guy standing on the shore and said, friends, you don't have any fish? They say, No. He says, throw your net on the other side, and they do it. And, you know, a miraculous catch of fish. They can't even bring them all in. And, and one of the disciples looks at Peter and says, it's the Lord. Well, Peter jumps out of the boat um, into the water and, and, you know, swims there. And the other disciples follow in the boat and um, have the big net full of fish. But they are 100 yards away, it says in the Bible. So 300 feet. He's not going to recognize him from 300 feet away, but he figures out it's him because there's a miracle. Well, he gets there and the Bible says in, in this chapter, John 21 and it's 12, Jesus is cooking breakfast for them. And he says, come and have some breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And the word dared there is straight. Like nobody dared to ask <laughs> because I think, I mean, it must have been so obvious that they would have all thought, did he just ask that? You know, he must be an idiot or so, you know, and so none of them dared to ask because they recognized him. Well, you know, uh, okay, so did, uh, uh, there's this movie with Christian Bale in it. It's one of his early ones. And he is uh, playing a magician. Man, I can't remember the name of it. I'm not and sure. um, and in the movie, he is—he's uh, trying to figure out how to become a great magician. Oh, is this the Prestige with Hugh Jackman too? That was a good one. Yeah, that's was it. Hugh Jackman in that as well? Yeah, he was, wasn't he? Okay, I feel yeah. like he was. And so, and uh, okay, so if you want to watch this, I'm about to give a spoiler alert here. If you haven't seen it, but uh, so good, it was so good. Yeah. So, and what happens is he's doing these incredible tricks, mm -hmm. you know, where he literally appears from one place to another, you know what I'm saying? But what, but what he, uh, what he figured out was he, you have to in, be all in on it 
And so what you find out, he had this, he had an assistant with him, but what you find out later is uh, his assistant was his identical twin brother. And so they were so committed to this and the assistant, they, he always changed. Uh, they changed the way he looked, you know, his clothes, wore makeup, a beard, a mustache, walked humper over and the two brothers could switch roles at any time. And so they, they, no matter where they went, they didn't even, they didn't tell one guy got married. He didn't even tell his wife, you know? And so, uh, and so anyway, to make a long story short, so they, uh, at the very end, near the end, one of them has an accident where they lose two fingers. And so the other brother ends up cutting those two fingers off to match his, you see, you see the dedication here. So where I'm headed with this is they were, they were tricking people to think one, um, uh, two people were one. Now I want to tell you, you can say Jesus had a identical twin brother. Okay. And when he died, his twin brother took over. Okay. You follow what I'm saying? All right, but um, but this is why it's important about Jesus' resurrected body was the same as his pre-resurrected body because all these witnesses saw it. They touched him. They were there. And also Jesus, you know, shared a bunch of stuff. And it was, to, to everyone there, it was obvious that this is the same Jesus, not some pretender, not some phony, not some uh, impersonator, okay? Okay. Uh, uh, but, but however, his resurrected body, uh, also proved that, Hey, I am the same Jesus, but I'm not the same. Right. You know, I, I've gone from a physical body now to a spiritual body and I'm coming and going at will. Yeah. And they all saw this and they say, okay, he's doing miracles still. Right. And, um, and if you, if you can believe that Mary was able to keep twins secret, <laughs> um, and that, you know, at that time and everything, and that they managed to keep a cover-up of Jesus's twin brother through this entire time, plus the fact that, you know, Thomas was able to feel the nail holes in his hand. If you can believe that, man, you got enough faith to believe in the resurrection, you're just putting it in the wrong spot. <laughs> yeah, wow. You know, anyway, just a thought. Yeah. Okay, number eight, the resurrection appearances. Okay, so Jesus is resurrected. Um, the resurrected Lord was seen by many people in the 40 days that followed. Uh, among them were the faithful women at the tomb, the two uh, on the Emmaus Road, Peter, the 12, 500 believers at one time, James, uh, the apostles, and, and Paul himself. Um, those witnesses were an important testimony to the authenticity of the resurrection. Again, this is where you go back to, they named names. Okay. Um, uh, and you know, the, obviously the Bible, we're talking about biblical evidence at this point, but uh, I mean, again, if the authorities wanted to debunk all this stuff, they just had to track these people down and, um, and interrogate them. You know, and if Jesus was alive, I guarantee you somebody would have co confessed, I know where he's at. You, you know what I'm saying? And uh, they could have just went and got Jesus and killed him again. You know, and say, okay, we're going to make sure this guy's dead. But, uh, but the resurrection appearances, 
just say, hey, I was dead. You know, Roman, the Roman guard, you know, proved I was dead. I was buried. Now I'm raised now. I'm, I'm walking around talking to you guys. And many of the people saw him crucified on the cross. And so, um, anyway, the resurrection appearance is just another piece of evidence. You just lay on the table. Okay, so then we have um, the transformed disciples. Okay, so, all right, the disciples knew Christ had died. And some of them were skeptical at first. You remember some doubted, okay, his resurrection. But when they saw him, they were completely changed. I mean, eventually, I mean, they all were on board eventually. And the Peter of Acts 2 is quite different from the Peter of John 19. So the knowledge and the impact of the resurrection made the difference. And besides, I mean, we'll talk about this more later, but these guys, the original disciples that we know of and many others, I mean, they died for Jesus. I mean, they were persecuted. Um, they were martyred, you know, and I want to, I want to be honest with you. If, if I'm following Jesus and I think he's alive, I mean, like never died, didn't resurrect, faked his death, all that kind of stuff, it, or if that was an imposter, I guarantee you I am not dying for that, you know? And, and not, uh, not clean deaths. We're not talking about, I mean, someone walking up and saying, I'm going to kill you and then shooting you. I mean, you know, if we're we talking torture. The, Right. If we look at the historical deaths, I mean, we're looking at, you know, beheadings and being boiled and being flayed alive. I mean, they are very serious and no one is committing to that for something they know is a lie. Right. Uh, so just because of their transformation, meaning their complete transformation to the commitment right. to Jesus mm -hmm. and, um, um, Anyway, all right, so the transformed disciples. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later as well. All right, so number 10. Uh, observance of the first day of the week. Okay, now, this, now th this may not be significant to us today because, you know, we, we just have church on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? It's on the weekend. It's on Sunday. Uh, you know, the, some Christians, you know, we, we call it the Lord's Day, you know. And I would say most Christians don't even know why we have church on Sunday rather than Saturday or Friday night or whatever. And, uh, but back in Jesus' time, um, the Jews who were looking for the Messiah, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those folks, the Hebrews, they all worshiped on Saturday called the Sabbath. That was significant. It was huge, built into the law. Okay, 10 commandment category. Okay, mm -hmm. you know, uh, talking about the Sabbath day. So now when you take about when you take a look at all the sacrifices that were made, animal sacrifices, the worship, everything, the commitment to this whole Sabbath Saturday, and when you take a look at, at the details of the religious leaders who converted. I mean, we're talking about people who converted from Judaism to Christianity, uh, who raised all their life worshiping in a very legalistic way on Saturday, the Sabbath, animal sacrifices. Um, 
when you take that group of folks and you move them from Saturday to Sunday, unless something significant happened to them, they're breaking the law, the religious law every week. They are walking away from it. I mean, to, to many of them, they were abandoning the faith. I mean, I mean, if, uh, abandoning the old faith. I mean, I could see family members saying, you're a Christian. You've got to be kidding. Mm-hmm. That is idol worship. And so for the church to, or for believers to move that were you, that were under the law to go from Saturday to Sunday, that it was a huge thing for them. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's just not a change a day, you know? And right. so the observance of the first day of the week, mm-hmm. you know, moving worship to Sunday was, I mean, that is a paradigm shift at the highest level. So to watch that happen with people under biblical law, Old Testament law, you just can't ignore that, you know? So what was it that, again, we're talking about biblical evidence, just laying on the table. Mm -hmm. People not, I mean, people just change their complete life, their religious lifestyle, Mm -hmm. uh, quit doing animal sacrifices. I mean, I mean, their faith has completely shifted. And this is all because of the resurrection. Now, the reason why we meet on Sunday now uh is because of the lord's resurrection right that's the day he rose from the dead so every time we gather we're actually remembering the resurrection of jesus because we're doing it on the day that uh uh, he he was raised so that's just another little piece of evidence we're gonna have to wrestle with this shift yeah from all those uh old testament believers to becoming new testament believers if you will yeah, and it's it's a huge shift, man. I read a few years back, man. I read um, Ted Decker is a kind of a Christian uh, suspense horror fantasy author, and um, he wrote a, a series of books. It's just four books called the Circle series, and it's kind of a you know kind of like C.S. Lewis. It's allegorical to the Christ narrative, and um, when you read the books in order, and you can start them in any order. It's a circle, but. Um, the the main character is going through it about halfway through the books man this character comes along and wants to wreck everything and you're i mean man you're reading you're siding with the main character like yeah get this upstart young punk out of here and and you're siding with the main character because this other guy's just got this paradigm shift of everything until you figure out oh that's the jesus character <laughs> and, and so <laughs> You know, I feel like an idiot because I'm over here going, no, keep the old ways. And you know me, I am all about change. I am as, you know, anti-tradition as you can get. And and so for me, reading this going, yeah, we got to keep the old ways, man. This upstart guy is crazy. You know, <laughs> it's so difficult to yeah. to imagine moving that change through. And they did. Well, you know, if you know anything about the life of Paul, mm-hmm. That I mean, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, he was all in yeah. on that stuff, and he left it overnight. Oh yeah, absolutely. And because of the resurrection, because of that encounter with the resurrection, right? Resurrected Jesus, so. right? Uh, okay, so check this out. Okay, this one I think is this next piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. This is huge in my book. I mean, it's and you'll see what I mean. Right. Jesus' resurrection convinced his family to worship him as God. 
Okay. You got any brothers or sisters? I do. Okay. Think about, (laughs) think about the, think about the mental change that would have to happen for you to worship one of your siblings. I'm going to log off now. Podcast (laughs) over. (laughs) Okay. All right. So now look, if my sister had lived a perfect life, we could talk about that, but you don't know my sister. (laughs) All right. And I'd say this to her face. So that's okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's just, okay. All right. Let's just go to the next thing here for just a second. I mean, not the next point, but under this thought. Okay. Not only did his brothers Mm -hmm. like James, who wrote the book of James, um, end up worshiping him Mm -hmm. as the Messiah, as God in the flesh. Um, but also his mother, Okay, parent. Okay, if you're a parent and you have children, think about them growing up as an adult. What would have to happen for you to legitimately go to a worship service and pray to them, worship them as God? What what would what would have to happen for them to prove to you? Yeah. You see what I'm saying here? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And now, obviously, Mary had a little advantage here because an angel appeared to her. Sure. You know, at the, you know when he was conceived and miraculous birth and all this other stuff. And she saw him do miracles up front. Obviously, she had some faith in his miracle working power, had a little bit of an understanding of who he was, not fully, completely understanding, but enough to know that he was, a, this was a divine person. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, but still, I mean, um, so when you, when you, we're talking about biblical evidence, when you take a look at his family and their shift into believing who he was, because originally, I mean, the Bible doesn't hold anything back. Originally, the Bible says that including his mother mm-hmm. with his siblings, they came to get him one time because the Bible said they thought he was out of his mind. Right. Because he was saying that he was God. They thought he was nuts. Right. And so they didn't under, even at that point, they didn't even understand that. So somewhere along the way, something had to happen that proved to them to where that, okay, Jesus was not nuts. He was who he said, well, it was the resurrection. Absolutely. So I'm going to just throw that on the table. And because uh, that, is, that is one question. When I get to heaven, I want to sit down with his family, especially his brothers and sisters, and say, walk me through that transition for you. You know, to Jesus being this loving brother, I'm going to assume he's loving, because, you know, Jesus is love, you know. Um, to where you thought he was nuts and crazy. Mm-hmm to the point where you said, where you got to the point where, you know, he is God. He's right. He was, he is the alpha and omega. I mean, so I'm just going to throw that on the table as evidence. So fair. I got four kids. There ain't no way I'm worshiping them. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So, uh, well, all right. We'll see Uh if our families listen to this real soon. (laughs) We're going to start getting text messages and stuff. Yeah, it's like, Dad, you hate me. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh man. Okay, so uh, another piece of evidence here under biblical evidence. Jesus' resurrection was confirmed mm -hmm. by his most bitter enemies, such as Paul. Okay, so now I've already mentioned him before and this a little bit, but okay, so Paul was a committed Jewish Pharisee who was committed and dedicated to the persecution and killing of Christians because he saw them as blasphemous. Mm -hmm. He saw them as attacking the one true God. Uh, as he saw them as anti-God. I mean, he was on a crusade to make Christians' lives mm -hmm. miserable. And I don't mean just killing them, torture them, use them as examples. I mean, wow. I mean, to be honest with you, there, to me, there were two major players who hated Christians. One was Nero, and the other one was Paul. I mean, those two yeah. guys, they killed a – between those two guys – they killed a lot of Christians. Yeah, I read um, one book that I don't, I mean, I don't think there's necessarily any, any factual evidence for this, but they compared him to and um, even theorized that he could have been organizing arena games. You know, we talk about the Christians being burned as torches in the Coliseum and being eaten by animals and stuff. And there were theories that he either, I mean, he could have brought people to that and, and, fed that arena game thing you know and yeah i mean he was horrible to christians and he was an excellent religious person you know and that's what we tend to overlook about paul is he was uh he knew all about the old testament and he knew you know everything he needed to know and when we talk about having a relationship with god and not just knowledge of god that's what we're talking about we're talking about pre pre-conversion paul and post-conversion paul you know, he had all of this knowledge before his conversion, and then he had a relationship after his conversion. And just to chase a tangent there on well, I mean, knowledge okay. of. Well, let's chase that a little tangent a little bit more. I mean, think about it. See, that explains why, like in Acts, where uh, some of the Christians, when they heard Paul was coming to their meeting, yeah, they didn't want to have nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Because Jesus sends him, or God sends him specifically to a, a specific person. <laughs> and you know that guy is like, uh-uh. This is a trap. <laughs> you know? This has got to be a trap. Yes, absolutely, man. You want me to meet who now? And they, yeah. but eventually they were accepting of him. And Right. Yeah, and, and yeah. so so you were talking about uh, enemy number one. If you know a guy is out to kill your type of people, <laughs> and you're supposed to invite him into the meeting of that type of people. Mm. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So for Paul, I could see why the Christians were doubtful about his conversion. Well, yeah. At first, but eventually they had no doubt. You know, he was, he was legit. Uh, he was born again. I mean, he was, you know, now he's being beaten for Christ. He's been, thrown in jail because of his preaching. I mean, he, he, you know, his body had the marks to prove it. So, uh, so this enemy of Jesus is transformed. Uh, and it's all because he met the resurrected Jesus on the road. I mean, so I mean, what do you do with that? Yeah. I mean, that's a piece of evidence that you just can't ignore. I mean, 
So, hmm, interesting. Um, okay, that's 12 uh, of them. And let, just because of time, we're going to go ahead and move into the circumstantial evidence for Jesus' sure. resurrection. Um, this is circumstantial. It, it, it overlaps with biblical evidence as well, but eh, you'll see what I'm saying here. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, when we're talking about circumstantial evidence, we're talking about effects having causes. This happens, that's the result. Mm -hmm. And so, and you're looking at the result, circumstantial. So if you look at the result of something and you go back, so, well, that result, there, something had to make that happen. So it's not directly evident, direct evidence, uh, like an empty tomb, you know, or an eyewitness at the event. You know what I'm saying? Say, I saw it, I was there. Uh, but it is circumstantial, meaning, hmm. you know, for, for example, uh, years ago, I read something about circumstantial evidence and what it is. It's like, uh, if you go to, if you go outside your house and you see dog footprints in the snow, okay, that is circumstantial. There's no dog. There's no video of the dog, but there are footprints. Right. Something left this footprint that points back that there was somebody or a, a dog there. Does that make sense? Right. So this is what kind of what we're talking about. We see the results of something that points back circumstantial. Yeah, it's okay. the the smoking gun theory you know if you right. if someone catches you with a smoking gun near a murder scene they assume it's you that is the strongest type of circumstantial evidence yeah. and contrary <laughs> to popular belief circumstantial evidence is admissible in court if it is strong enough and if it is linked to other types so when we are looking at circumstantial evidence right. some people are going you know they hear the pop culture term circumstantial and go oh that doesn't even count yeah it counts it's mm -hmm. just in conjunction with some of the other things we've talked about right so, uh, again, uh, some of the stuff we've already talked about, but we're going to talk about it under the circumstantial concept. So maybe you get a little bit different perspective on what you've already heard. So sure. for example, number one, Jesus disciples remain loyal to Jesus as their victorious Messiah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is circumstantial. This again, something happened that caused them to remain loyal goes, goes back to them being persecuted being martyred, sawn in half, you know, thrown in prison, the whole thing. So again, that's circumstantial evidence, but we're not talking about one or two crazy people mm -hmm. who just think Jesus resurrected. We're talking about hundreds and thousands of people. All they had to say, like under Nero, all they had to say was, I deny him, worship Caesar, whatever. And he would let many of them go. But, um, Something happened that caused these believers, these early Christians, to be willing to give up their life. And, uh, and it was the resurrection. So, again, circumstantial points back to it. Right. Okay. Um, and we've already mentioned this, uh, but worship changed. Now, I've already mentioned that whole Saturday to Sunday thing, the Lord's Day. But there were a few other things in the world of worship. Again, circumstantial evidence something calls something to change so for example um before the resurrection people didn't take communion okay they didn't baptize you know in the name of the father son mm -hmm. 
Okay, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, um, and they didn't really call it the Lord's Day. So a lot of things changed in the worship. And so uh, a lot of folks who were Old Testament worshipers moved over, converted into this New Testament worship. And so again, circumstantial evidence, what caused that? And we're talking immediate change. We're not talking about something that gradually happened over centuries. We're talking resurrected, bam. When you get into the book of Acts, after the resurrection, it's like, boy, I mean, it's immediately happening. Uh, and people are believing left and right uh, by the thousands in the book of Acts. And so uh, worship, worship, change. what, what, what caused that, mm -hmm. you know, again, circumstantial. Sure. Um, and I've already mentioned this as well, but the whole Jesus tomb was not enshrined. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cause um, I mean, again, a typical practice in Judaism uh, for the tomb of a prophet or holy man was to be preserved as a shrine where people could go and worship or pay homage or whatever. Um, but because there was no tomb there, I mean, no bones there, no body there, it just didn't develop. And also another thing is, uh, okay, I will say this though. I am surprised that it was not enshrined in some way and maybe for a while it was and I, when i say enshrined i mean this is where the resurrection took place okay yeah. this is a major event yeah you know and um you know obviously we think you know there's a couple of tombs you know that people think that it happened you know at but uh, but we're not 100 percent sure so right. uh, but again if the body was there and people wanted to you know, it would have been enshrined uh, according to Judaism, but it just was again circumstantial evidence, something that didn't happen that normally would have happened because there's no body there. And so, uh, and and let's not ignore the fact that this happened 2,000 years ago, and there's still not been a body that they've been able to decisively say, yeah, I, I think this has a good chance of being Jesus. No, it's just we're no. finding you know, creatures that live a mile underneath the ocean and we can't find Jesus's body. There's something there, man. No, <laughs> no. Um, okay. Let's take a brief look at the historical evidence. Um, okay. Because Jesus death is a historical event, there should be evidence from the records of history. Okay. Obviously surely somebody that's not a believer, that's not trying to prove something, uh, made a comment about this. So, okay, probably the most famous historian on Christian stuff uh, is a first century historian by the name of Josephus. Mm -hmm. um, and he's commented a lot about Christian behavior in churches and stuff in his writings when he's writing. But however, there is this one statement that he just throws it down and and. Josephus wrote that Jesus, quote, appeared to his disciples alive again the third day, end quote. Okay, we're talking about first century. We're talking about Josephus. He's not trying to prove anything here. He is just writing what he sees as facts, reporting stuff. So, uh, and when he wrote this, he wasn't writing it that his disciples said. He is writing it 
just like it sounds that Jesus appeared. So in some way, Joe, it was almost like it was a known fact, at least to him, so which is interesting. So, I mean, yeah, that's worth thought investigating, you know, what else did Josephus have to say about that? I mean, just that kind of stuff. Then you have this Roman historian from the first century named Suetonius. Um, he wrote in his biography of Nero. Now he's writing about Nero. Okay. So he's just telling the story of Nero. And he mentions the persecution of Christians by indirectly referring to the resurrection. Hmm. Okay, now he's not going to, he is going to use a code word here, and I'm going to have to rely on those who study this guy more than me, but here's what he wrote, and then we're going to, I'm going to explain something. Uh, because again, back in the first century, they used words that we don't use today in the way that we don't, you follow what I'm saying? Right. So, uh, but here we go. Here's what he said. Quote, punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. Okay, now it doesn't sound like he's talking about anything in particular, but those who study this kind of stuff, they agree that this mischievous, that's key, superstition was the belief in the resurrection. Hmm. Okay, so now again, this historian, Suetonius, he makes a comment here in reference to something that some people say, if Jesus isn't real, I mean, at all, okay? If they say he's not real, well, here we have this Suetonius just writing a biography of Nero, and he mentions Christians, okay, those who believe in Christ, you know, Jesus followers. And then he mentions this mischievous superstition that those who study this say he's talking about the resurrection. Yeah. I, I looked that up because I hadn't heard that mischievous right. or mischievous superstition. Um, Tacitus also is a fairly respected historian of the time. And he, he called it the same thing. So that's a, yeah. So, uh, which is interesting. So, um, all right, so uh, now that is a small okay. That is a small sample of where the historians mention this resurrection event or something that took place that was significant. Um, so I would encourage you, if you would, to just dig. If you're like history, just dig into it and see what you find. Yeah. Um, because that uh, Lee Strobel's book, what's, uh, I don't forget the name The Case for of Christ. Yeah. The what? The Case for Christ. Yeah, The Case for Christ. Um, he does a good job at walking through all of this stuff in much more detail, probably more detail than you want. Oh, and um, and Lee Strobel, if, you, if you're not familiar with him, his books are written like from a uh, reporter's perspective. Um, so he is, I mean, that's what he used to do. <laughs> and he just took that style of writing and, Mm -hmm. put it in book form. So, uh, the case for Christ. So, um, so when you take the biblical evidence, the circumstantial evidence mm -hmm. and the historical evidence, you have a pretty strong case for this resurrection of Jesus. Um, and you've got to make a decision with it. You're going to have to do something with it. Either it happened 
or it did not. Right. Okay. And which path you take, uh, there's an eternal consequence with each one. And so I want, if this is new to you, I would encourage you to reach out to us or to do some homework for yourself, do some research. And uh, there's plenty of material out there. And uh, obviously, Chris and I, we know we believe the resurrection. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're Christians and we're yeah. pastors of church. <laughs> so uh, uh, pastors of the same church. So anyway, uh, uh, as a believer, however, I think the greatest evidence of the resurrection you can give as a believer, greatest evidence of the resurrection you can give is to allow the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to transform your life. And uh, I would encourage you to uh, just surrender to him and let him work in and through you. All right, man, that is uh, what I got on the evidences of the resurrection. There is more out there, but I thought that would be enough to give you a taste of mm -hmm. a little bit of all that. Yeah, I was going to say real quick, you were talking about, you know, living our evidence like that. And, you know, we hear all the time and it, it's kind of a, a mantra for people is that people don't change. You know, they just don't change. And when you present them with a life that is actually changed, you rock their world and they have to fight to, I mean, they have to fight to keep that belief. And that's an important thing because if you can prove to them that people can change, that is a huge um, point to Christ. So, I just now yeah. remember there's a song, man, I don't remember the name of it. Uh, but when I was younger, uh, I, don't, I don't even know how I came across it. But anyway, um, it's, I wouldn't call it gospel. I would call it country gospel because it sounds like a country song, you know, like something George Jones would sing, you know, something like that. But it's about, it's about this very thing where this guy, he's singing that he, and he may look exactly the same on the outside. He wears the same old shirt, same boot, same belt, same hat. You know, it's obviously a cowboy kind of a right. song, but it uh, drives the same old truck, that kind of thing, you know, uh, and, you know, goes the same fishing holes and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but it, the whole song is about, he may look the same on the outside, but he has completely changed on the inside and it's because yeah. of Jesus, but it's a, uh, man thought about that song in forever. I need to look that thing. <laughs> anyway, okay. uh, but that, that's, but that is true. That's what the yeah. resurrection power of Jesus will do. Um, uh, in a person's life. People yep. can change. Absolutely, man. All right. Well, uh, that's all we've got for today. So I guess we will see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Yep.